Welcome back. It's Swing Pass. We've got the week 13 preview pod, second to last weekend of regular season games in the 2022 AUDL regular season. Pen Ultimate Ultimate coming up for you in the next set of days. My co-host Daniel Cohen and I are here to break down the previews and also get into a bit more of expanded playoff talk, maybe leak a little bit into season end award preview talks and banter. I don't know. We've got 12 games this weekend, but with eight teams already clinched in the playoffs and the other seemingly three available spots looking heavily favored by the teams already occupying them, there isn't a whole bunch of dramatic action heading into this weekend, but there are a couple of notable matchups. And I think we want to start in the East Division and the Friday night feature New York Empire at Philadelphia Phoenix. Now, if you just looked at the records, Philadelphia sitting at 5-5, five and five, New York 11-0, looking for their second flawless regular season in three years. You would think this is going to be kind of a blowout in New York's favor, and it might be given how good the Empire have been this season. But conversely to that, and especially given their eyeball test of late, Philly just has an edge this year that they haven't in basically the entire tenure that they've been known as the Phoenix, you know, starting in 2013. Uh, This is a franchise that obviously won a title in the inaugural season of this league in 2012. But ever since then, since they've been known in the Phoenix in 2013, it's just been a new era. And uh, frankly, a franchise that hasn't experienced a whole bunch of winning that has changed this year. And especially given the productivity of this Phoenix offense, they look like a team that not only in their, I think, systems and the play style that they run, but in their personnel can hang with DC and New York in the East Division playoffs. And they have been talking a bunch on their social media for weeks about wanting this matchup against a perfect record Empire team and wanting to dash the hopes of this pristine season for New York. I, I think Philly is, I, like, I can't think of a, a team I'd rather have end New York's perfect season, just with with the energy that's been growing in Philly throughout the season, really throughout, like, their recent seasons. Like, this would be just such a fun way for them to end their season. And, like, you know, it's not a meaningful game in terms of the standings, but it is a chance for New York to become the first team ever to complete two or multiple undefeated regular seasons that's never been done in AUDL history so I know I know Philly is chopping at the bit for this matchup it's a bummer they're not gonna have Jordan Ryan for this game but they also didn't have him for their first meeting with New York and it's just gonna be another test like that first game with New York it was in suboptimal conditions kind of rainy kind of windy um, which are the games that we've seen New York struggle a bit in this season. I don't know what the weather report is for tomorrow night, but I do expect this game to still be a battle. I, I think we were all pretty surprised when Philly played New York to within two goals, but based on what they've done the rest of the season, and considering that was that was their biggest loss of the year, right? Like every other loss has only been by a single goal. So I, I think just everything surrounding Philly this season has them like pretty well set up to compete in this game. And I think that really goes back to how well coached Philly has been this year. 
you know, we can talk about the talent, the emergence of James Pollard on offense, Sean Mott having a career season, Jordan Ryan obviously looking like possibly the team's MVP in his first season with the Phoenix, given the kind of dimensions his throwing talents add to this offense. But I think it really starts with the coaching and they just, Philly is a team this year who seems well prepared for any matchup an opponent is throwing at them, even a team like New York, you know, like, I think looking back, we attributed too much to the weather in that close loss they had at New York uh, to start mm-hmm. the season for Philly. I think that they really made the game into a rock fight with their ability to recognize what New York did well, challenging the deep attack that the Empire have gotten so good at and making them play just a little bit outside their comfort zone and pressuring them in that kind of liminal space. Uh, Philly's been able to do that a bunch this year. You know, they were within one goal twice of a DC team that is otherwise, with the exception of their games against New York, ran through the rest of the East this year. You know, the Breeze are conquering teams throughout the division that aren't the Phoenix or the Empire. And I just think, you know, it, it speaks to Philly's game planning, their preparedness coming into these matchups and knowing those two things and knowing how they've had this one against New York circled. I'm interested to see what they do against Ryan Osgar and Jeff Babbitt and Jack Williams on offense, how they can maybe turn this into another tough one and two goal throughout struggle for New York. Because I, I think Philly of almost any other team in the East then DC has an ability to make the empire work for it a bit. Yeah. And, and I was looking just at their season long stats because it, it, you know, while they have been a lot more efficient as a team, like limiting their turnovers in recent weeks, uh, they've been under 20 of the past three games they've played, you know, two of those against DC, they're still not at the efficiency level that we see from New York and DC. So it, it really is like they, I think they just force enough turnovers. They force enough sloppiness on the other side to turn these games into, like you said, rock fights. And on the season, their opponents are averaging, I think, over 20 turnovers per game. Yeah, 20.2 turnovers per game. I mean, New York had 22 turnovers in that first meeting. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like, is that... Is that them getting lucky? Is it a combination of of defensive pressure, but also just like their defensive system where, you know, they are averaging 11 blocks a game, which I think is like top seven or maybe sixth most in the league. Um, but like how much of it is that and how much of it is just like constant pressure that even if they're not getting a block, they are forcing and earning these turnovers? I think it's both. I think that the Philly defenders on an individual basis are surprisingly underrated. And I think you saw that a little bit in Toronto with some of the plays that they were making. Uh, Paul Owens, for starters, who got that layout, Callahan, against the Rush last weekend. He's been playing fantastic handler defense, producing almost a block away, mucking up handler lanes. Uh, Max Triflis is having a great first year for this team. Scott Heyman has played really good matchup defense at times for them. Gavin Abramson, the rookie, has been good for them in parts. Eric Whitmer, who has been kind of a a combine freak for them the past few years. Like if you ever saw Philly when they put up 40 and uh, jump metrics from their tryouts, Whitmer would always test within like the top three to five of pretty much any kind of combine drill that they would set up. 
He's playing well. Mike Campanella has been doing well. But more than that, they're playing on a string together. Uh, Austin Lillis, too. I, I meant to mention him. He had a great game against DC a couple weekends ago. He got that huge up line block uh, kind of coming off the backside and kind of doing a jack from out the hat or excuse me excuse me rabbit from out the hat uh block um but they're they're all playing well but i think they're all just playing on a string together and that's what makes such a difference Mm -hmm. they're not just on an island expected to make plays in space and that's kind of how philly's defense has been set up in the past like you think of when james pollard was playing on there the past few years he was great at winning discs in space in one-on-one matchups but philly didn't put him in many advantageous positions to do so and I feel like that is in stark contrast to this year where it just feels like everyone is in a position for them to make plays like when you watch Philly play just point in point out their lineups make a ton of sense for what they've been working with this year and I just I I have a lot of faith in what the coaching staff has been doing as far as working in these rotations getting these guys acclimated getting these lineups to play together. You know, I think one of the larger storylines we've talked about this season is the ability for teams who are now trending into the postseason to have played together. You know, we talk about a team like Atlanta, who's just about to get closed out of the playoffs yet again. And they're as talented as any roster in this league, but they simply haven't played together. And I think you look in contrast to a team like Philly, that's been really working into these lineups and these grooves with who to expect where, like you can, you can kind of set your watch to what to expect to from this offense, even without Jordan Ryan, we've seen it a couple times this season. Philly can still perform there. Similarly on defense. I just think that they have a really good job of identifying matchups. They all play well together. They, you know, quote unquote, play through the whistle, you know, they're, they're going to challenge discs. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that kind of just, top-down discipline that attention to detail and i mm-hmm. think you're really seeing the reward for that for again a philly team that has five losses but the most of those is by two goals to new york you know a new york team that's been just nuking from orbit most of the teams in the east division is is there a chance in your mind that new york can nuke philly from orbit tomorrow night because I, like I think, as as much as we can talk up Philly, I I still think there is another level to this New York game, and maybe this is still me putting too much emphasis on the weather of that first meeting. And you know, it's like I I just feel like I'm saying the same things over and over again because when we were talking about Philly against DC before their first matchup, it was like on paper DC like should blow out this Philly team. Didn't happen. Saying the same thing again the next week, playing in DC, didn't happen. Is this is this just a characteristic of this Phoenix team that they they will not get blown out? Like they just have too much fight in them? Or would you say a blowout is possible tomorrow night? I think of all the potential lineups, this is the one where Philly might find some traction. I think that there are a couple of notable absences, particularly on offense. I think... Charles Weinberg has been a really underrated secret sauce to what has made the New York offense so efficient and what has made them so comfortable in shifting Yacht over to defense. You know, we obviously credit the incredible passing season that Ryan Osgar is having. They have this guy named Jack Williams on the roster who's pretty good. I think he's coming back with a little bit of hardware from the World Games of the Golden Variety. 
uh, you know, there's there's talent everywhere. But I think that Weinberg, his his chemistry along with his skill set, his ability to know that offense and just step in and do his thing, I think has been so good for them. And, you know, we don't talk about enough. He has a lot of former playing experience with both Yacht and Osgar from going back even to their college days at Minnesota. And I think you really see just the the chemistry aspect when he's in the lineup. They just have a, a rhythm and that kind of almost like it reminds me at times when they're super clicking of like the Warriors in basketball when they were just too many options with like Katie and Steph and everyone. Like when they were when they have Weinberg out there and they can just sort of spread you and say like, hey, we've got Jack Williams, Elliot Chartok, Ryan Osgar, and Charles Weinberg that can just sort of unload from anywhere on the field good luck like they're they're a different beast and without him I think given how well Philly prepares Philly might be able to limit the empire a little bit or stick close it's just you have to play <laughs> perfect you have to play perfect against New York to stay even competitive yeah. against them these days because with the way that their defense is playing if and when you make mistakes they just murder you even without Jabron Mieser and John Randolph in the lineup, potentially, they're both dressed, but they're not active. Um, and a dr- they're down a Drost brother in Ryan. Uh, but it's still just like, you know, it, again, they have an offensive line that they run out at you on counterattacks if you make a turnover. So given that Philly still does give the disc away at times, I, I'm still worried, you know, like... I, yeah, well, that, I mean, the D-line counterattack to me is, like, the biggest point of emphasis, and I would say the biggest, like, and the biggest reason, if if a blowout happens, obviously, it's going to come from that Empire D-line, and I just trust them to be a lot more efficient with their opportunities than Phillies. And, like, it's that on top of the fact that I would expect Phillies offense to turn the disc over more than the Empire offense, too. So, yeah, Philly does really have to be perfect, New York does not, but yeah, their D-line is coming off a 16 of 18 (laughs) conversion game against Boston in their last time out, 89%. Uh, I I don't know where that ranks in terms of like league records for a single game, but uh, definitely their season high for both breaks and conversion percentage. And it's just, I think it can be too much at times for opponents, especially when they're able to string together multiple of them. So Empire on the year, by the way, 58.5% conversion rate, which is third best behind Indian DC. Phoenix are down, I believe, just outside the top 10 at 45.3%. But, you know, it was that first Phoenix game against DC that we saw their D-line probably look their best. I think they were something like six of nine on their break conversions. And, you know, anytime you're facing New York or DC, you're just not going to get that many opportunities. Like I, I'll be pretty surprised if they get nine break opportunities against New York in this game, which is just going to further that emphasis on converting every single one of them. Well, and here's why it also almost doesn't matter that Charles Weinberg isn't maybe going to be available. I, I say it like he's not playing. He is dressed, but he's we not We never active. know what dressed means. Like we've talked about before yeah. on this show. Yeah, I I assume dressed is meaning out. I don't want to like have to split it 50-50 or something. But if Weinberg isn't able to go, 
the other person that's been just, I think, phenomenal, and we, it's so hard to get to him when you talk about everyone on this Empire team, John Lithiau has taken at least one, if not two steps forward as a thrower this year. He had really good throws last year. Oh, he yeah. was great in continuation with that flick. He started showing off like a 30-yard hammer that all of a sudden he has over the top. And when he's six foot five and just launching over the top of himself like a trebuchet, it looks like another sort of Osgar scalpel thrower that they have around the goal line where it's just if he can throw over the top and with the release angles that he has, what are you going to do to stop it? He was doing it against Boston in the rare opportunities that their O-line took the field against the glory. But Lithia was just sort of carving him up out there. I need to look really quick at what he finished with, but he's just added another, he had five assists and four goals, 376 throwing yards, a career high, and was 21 to 21 on throws. Man. Like, <laughs> They, Pretty good. They, they just get another one. Yeah. I And, you know, Jeff Babbitt's just cruising around out there going 50 miles an hour at all times and scoring, you know, the fourth most goals in the league or whatever. He's up to 44, I think, in the season. Uh, it, it Everything's just coming easy right now for New York. And that's, I think, what worries me a little bit in this matchup is that their easiness isn't at the expense of any kind of competitive edge. You know, they're still just dominating teams. They're still going out there and executing point in, point out. They're not, like, playing easy. And against the Philly team that's just been kind of redlining it for weeks, like, they got up (laughs) for their D.C. We talked about this before. Like, they got up for the D.C. game. They got up for the next D.C. game. They got up for the Toronto game to clinch the playoffs. Now they're getting up for New York. It's I'm I'm just interested to see the stress test for a Phoenix team that has never had – like back-to-back important games the past eight seasons, let alone like a month straight of sort of need-to-win matchups. Right. Like how sustainable is their level of play right now? And, you know, it can go one of two ways. You can, like, I've, I've always thought of the Phoenix, I did at least earlier this season and in recent years, as like a relatively inconsistent team. Like we've seen good performances from them over the past several seasons, but it's hard for them to typically string together multiple so, yeah, I guess the question is now, like, is this sort of the new identity of this Phoenix team? Have they really risen above, you know, their previous struggles with efficiency? And, and like, is this a new team we're looking at? Or are they just kind of bound to come back down to earth at some point? I, I'll say they're a new team. I think that this is a new team. I'm just wondering where exactly is their ceiling right now? What is that? You know, I think that they've proven that they can hang, but kind of similar to almost like, yeah, I think, I think they've more or less been playing at their ceiling. Well, and it's, it it reminds me a little bit of Indy. Like they, they show that they can punch at times with these teams, but they don't really have that, that win, win, that, that victory against DC or New York for failure, that win against Chicago or Minnesota for Indy, where it's just we belong eye to eye with these teams. And I think that Philly's just searching for that right now. And like you say, I think that if they were to get it, they would be probably one of the more deserving teams to kind of break through against New York. It It's funny because it wasn't that long ago that I remember New York getting their first ever win in the 2018 East Division Championship game in the playoffs and Ben Yacht ripping off his shirt 
who else was there? I think it was Connor Klein that just immediately became shit. There was just like half a dozen New York dudes who just immediately were without shirts. Just yeah, like, it was like a Thanos snap, Gone. and half the shirts disappeared. And Ben Yacht was like rolling on the ground, and Bo Kittredge is just sort of like standing around. And you know, it was the first time the Empire had ever beaten the Rush in like 19 games, going back six seasons or something. And now it's like New York in the course of basically three three to four years have sort of assumed Toronto's mantle place or, or position on the throne. And now there are these other yeah. teams that are kind of building up their franchises around finally getting a win against them. And it's just really interesting to see how quickly that East Division narrative has sort of shifted. Well, and in 2019, it was cool when Philly won both games they played against Toronto. That was sort of like the, yeah, at Toronto and they beat them in Philly. And it was like, I don't know, I think we'd we'd sort of been suspecting a, a general upward trend from Philly. But that was like, that was sort of what ignited their current trajectory. Whereas with Toronto, I think that was maybe the the start of us thinking uh, that maybe they were slightly past their prime. Absolutely. But we should move on to the other East Division matchup we will preview for this weekend. The game of the week, DC at Boston. This game does not have any playoff implications because the East Division is settled already. New York in the one seed, DC in the two, and Philly in the three, as we sort of alluded to in the prior segment. So this matchup, I think, is of importance to DC because every matchup here going forward for the breeze is basically just their ability to stay more primed than New York. New York has this matchup against Philly. Then they will have on Friday, then they will have a first round bye. then they will host a playoff game. I believe the third, are they on the 20th weekend? Is that the same weekend as Carolina that the East division play on? Yeah, yeah. So new, you're talking about yeah. New York. New York will play on the 20th so weekend. So almost, yeah, that's the second round. Almost of the a month in between yeah, games for the Empire. While DC still has a game this yeah. weekend and the following weekend and a first round matchup against uh, Philly. So it is really important, I think, for the Breeze to continue the momentum that they built in recent weeks since losing to New York and dropping to 3-2. and two. The Breeze have won five straight in pretty convincing fashion they've had two close games against philly but other than that i feel like the breeze are one of the you know three to five most impressive teams this year top to bottom they're just able to beat you in so many different ways on offense uh rowan has been running terrifically in the midfield for them and then everything around him is just either good if not great christian boxley is playing frankly out of his mind lately he's just an ultimate it's it's unfair to call him like a glue piece or a connector or something given his explosiveness and ability to just take over for stretches but he he has this sort of always within the flow never taking anything off the table that he doesn't need to style of play that comes so easily it's hard not to think of him as that kind of role especially given that like Roman's well, pretty flashy Malks is pretty flat. Nissen has yeah. the bladey throws. Boxley's just 
front cone open, fill cut open, easy pass into space, easy midfield stop. Right. Well, it's it's that versatility. It's that versatility that has made him like such a asset. Because I think he. I mean, I this was before I followed the league the last time we saw him play with DC, but. I think he was like more of a strictly downfield receiver and just his ability now to get involved in the backfield. And like you said, really just slotting in where he's needed within the flow of the offense on any given point, any given possession. Like that's, that's why it's been so, so valuable to have him. It's that balance of like making plays when they're there, but never needing to force it. Yeah. But he still has, he has a pace. He plays so up tempo that there is just an attacking style to what he does. And I feel like you say glue guy or connector piece or something. There's this implication that they, they, they sit back and take things as they are. And that's, that's not boxing at all. Like, yeah, is, well, right. Glue guy is, is like one of yeah, his roles, yeah. I would say. But yes, he, he can be like an exclamation point guy as well. And then I think what's really tuned up for DC lately has been their defense. We were looking at some statistics through the first few games, and obviously it was a sample size overwhelmed by two games early against New York, who is playing at a historic level on offense, and they caught a white-hot Toronto team at home. So some of the metrics against DC were skewed, I think, over the first month, month and a half of the season compared to where this team plays at. And I think the last few games have really shown that. Obviously, they surrendered a bunch to uh, Philly at home the other week, but their D-line's ability to still be so potent in the counterattack and still get takeaways by making aggressive, like athletic plays in the field... Uh, they just they they have I think what I would consider a top three defense this year. It's just they can they can match up in space with you. The development of Musa Ja as a big and the addition of David Cranston uh, as you, if you watched any of the games this past weekend, they were so good at providing a canopy over the top. And then beyond that, they have just kind of like their offense about seven to eight guys deep who they can just run at you and kind of eat away your legs until you make a pass into the flat that doesn't quite have enough on it and somebody eats it up and then it's Alexander Fall and AJ Merriman just running on you in transition and it's just they overwhelm you they have that ability to overwhelm and it's it's reminiscent of the kind of hecticness that I think we've talked about with uh, the young styles of like a Seattle or something in the past but with DC they're they're precise in that counterattack. Like when they get opportunities, they do not waste them. What is DC right now in their defensive line? They're second. They're second. Yeah. Second in D line conversion rate. Just only to Indy. And I feel like they're also second all time that, uh, yeah, it's looking like they have the second highest D line efficiency and counterattack scores yeah, all time. Right. So they just have that. That frenzy to them. And you could see that on display against Ottawa and Montreal, especially this past weekend, where those teams are going to give them a lot of opportunities to attack. And the breeze just overwhelmed opponents. And I I kind of expect them to play against Boston similarly. They they have a, a smell for blood in the water right now. Like Merriman, I think, had a bit of a slow start to 2022 after coming off of his Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, season in 2021 but lately he's been heating up he is eating up any kind of floaty disc in the air he's been amazing at the end of quarter at just 
putting a period on the end of things. He's starting to get his legs underneath him in transition. And I think he's found his rhythm as to when to take shots deep. You can just see him feeding big energy plays more and more lately. And I think especially with Fall, those two just have a a rhythm in that counterattack where Fall's willing to just sprint into space at a moment's notice and Merriman's going to oblige him if there's even a moment of opportunity yeah. and that that kind of dynamic one two and a d-line counterattack is just so potent and they're really showing that i think this year oh it's great and it's a great like it's great to have that but also still have guys like david bloodgood or shields or like whoever's leading the the general you know slower pace counterattack with with these like explosive weapons like they just have a really good mix of offensive players on that D line. Like even, even with AJ's slow start this season, I just feel like having him out there and having that threat to unload, you know, an 80 yard huck at any moment. Like that's just, it's hard to, to like key in on any one guy on that line. Um, So I, I think they, I agree. I think they've hit their rhythm a lot in recent weeks. I, I don't know. You said you'd call them a top three defense. I haven't been overly impressed with them, like just from a takeaway or from like a shutdown defense standpoint this season. Like I think their opponents are converting something like 55% of their offensive possessions against them, which is not great. It is better now than it was to start the season. Like we said, somewhat skewed by the those New York games. But I don't know. I think there is – it almost seemed like there was a little bit more hunger or like statement takeaways last season – than we've seen from them this season. Who who is better than them other than Carolina and uh why New York right now? I guess is my question. Like I don't think Colorado is necessarily better. I think some of their block metrics are inflated by the general block metrics of the West and kind of the more open style out there. There's a lot of huck happy teams in that division. I don't know. I, I really like the way DC plays, even if it's not always limiting opponents they're hunting and I just I like that style I like their ability to give you a lot of scoring potential from your defense every single game if the the opponents of a breeze team make mistakes they're all over them and that's just I think so valuable to be able to kind of counterpunch in that way in this league like even if even if you're giving up For some sure. goals if you can just edge out a few more breaks as they did against Philly the other week, you know, like Philly's offense played the better game. It was DC's counterattacking that got the breeze, the win in that. And I think that's just so, that's so valuable in an atmosphere where you, you kind of inevitably, inevitably have to trade punches with teams at some point. And I think the more reticent you are from doing that, the worse it gets, the deeper you go into the playoffs. And I just, Again, I, I like DC's style and how they're built for a deep postseason run once again. Even though they've even though well, they haven't they made are. championship weekend ever. I say that like they've been there every year, but <laughs> Right. It feels like they should be there every year. I mean I mean they've had to, but I, I agree with you. I agree with what you're saying about their counterattack. And I feel like, yeah, as we get into the playoffs, like that is when obviously teams are limiting mistakes more than they would be during the season. So like those break opportunities, the fact that that, that they converted seven of eight opportunities against Philly. And that was what got them a win. Like that was such a, uh, 
just like a, a big momentum push for them and that entire unit coming into the playoffs now. Like knowing that they have that in them to put together that level of efficiency is huge. I just haven't been overly impressed like by them forcing turnovers or getting those opportunities in the first place. Yes, I, I agree. They're a top three counterattack in the league. I just don't know if I have like a ton of faith in them come playoff time to shut down the Philly offense or shut down the New York offense. I mean, they didn't exactly limit New York in scoring in the two matchups that they've had against them in the regular season, but they made the empire work, you know, and I think there's something to that. I think DC is willing to maybe give up a couple of quick scores if they can still kind of attack you defensively in a way that they like. I I just... They're an aggressive bunch. Like they, they come at you. And right. I, I think that that yeah. has a risk reward too. And I think you see that at times. Like I think the Toronto game is a good example where I don't think DC was ready to adjust to some of the set plays that the Rush like to run. And Toronto was just able to get scores in deep space as they've done this season. And I think DC was still able to again win that game because when it came to opportunities, their D line was able to convert. And that's, that's a tough pill to swallow for an opponent like that for Philly's offense to have played the better game and still kind of be responsible for the loss simply because they gifted DC just enough opportunities. Like that's, that's a tough loss. And I think that again, that kind of that style is really beneficial, especially when you complement it with how DC's offense likes to play, which can work clock at times and just sort of, present a myriad of problems for basically any defense that it plays against. Do you, do you think Boston gives them like a good test this weekend? We've been talking a lot about DC. I want to pivot I mean, slightly to Boston Tanner because Johnson. they do have Tanner. They have Tanner They're Johnson, undefeated active, with Tanner Johnson in my mind home. is all they need. I don't know. I think that's all I they know. need. I think they'll. Give I'm them interested a run. to see the what I think will be Musa Ja and Tanner Johnson matchup. Now Ja has been their deep defender or big defender, uh, kind of primarily the past few matchups, and I really like the way that they're developing him. He's played on Babbitt a lot when they've matched up against New York, and just he's getting more and more agile with his size and ability to kind of read and react. He had a couple of really impressive against the grain blocks over the past few games. He had one against Ottawa preventing a score right on the goal line. And I'm interested to see how he can maybe handle Tanner Johnson's ability to cycle so fluidly between backfield space and upfield space. I feel like Ja might be one of the more equipped defenders to deal with the size and sort of mobility problem that Tanner Johnson often presents defenders. Do you think yeah, so? I think a little I, bit. I, I think a little bit. I don't know if I've seen enough from Jaw. DC yet. destroyed but... Boston last year. Like, just took them apart. Oh, so, yeah. And they didn't have a, ta- a Tanner Johnson list. Yeah, well, they Boston. had Tanner Hawkyard yes. and a lot of other nice pieces in that matchup. I think that was a pretty full strength Boston roster at the time. So, I don't know. I And I think the Breeze are a little bit better this season. So I don't know. I I think that, you know, what you have to do again against this DC team is make it a high scoring matchup. If you grind it against their 
defense and turn it into low opportunities, their D line is just too efficient to really win out against. Yeah. So I think I think Boston's got to turn up the heat. I think they have to, you know, engage the deep game. I just DC doesn't let opponents do that that well. Like they have been pretty good at putting a cap on teams. I I will I will recite the stat that I tweeted and mentioned in my players to watch article about Tanner Johnson. Uh, Boston is three and zero this season when Tanner Johnson has been active. They're five and two all time, dating back to the start of last season when Johnson is active. And the two losses were one goal losses to New York and Carolina. So other than those, they've won every game that he's been a part of. He to me he just is like. As advertised, he is that game-changing player and that presence that they really need on offense to be competitive in these games. Like he, he does. I think he does an excellent job of like picking his spots to strike deep, either with his throws or oh, with yeah. his legs. But very comfortable to facilitate the offense and not not force anything that isn't there. And I just, I, I think that that does a lot for this Boston offense that we've seen. Just like can get too huck happy at times, just doesn't like they don't always love playing the, well, the smaller, like shorter DC, game. But I think Johnson's presence just helps that. It it puts everyone at ease, I think, when he's out. DC there. has the third best huck defense in the league this year. Like that's what worries me. <laughs> you know, it's it's like Boston's strength yeah. is basically going up against DC's strength. And again, like Merriman's is playing really well in that deep space right now for them. Jaw's playing really well. I think Reese Bergeron is having a good year. He's just not quite getting the same block numbers as he did last year. Uh, Frederick Farrar mm-hmm. has been really nice for them in deep space as a big. Like I just, I think DC has some solutions that might be problems for a glory attack that will have Tanner Johnson, but still no like Orion Cable to really balance it out. They do return Topher Davis, yeah. but again, like Topher Davis is the type of player where I feel like. DC has a lot of different defenders that could potentially match up on him. Yeah. Yeah. I could see Reese Bergeron taking that matchup. Alexander Fall. Um, yeah. Definitely some other guys. Right. I, I don't know. In my mind, like Boston has been a, just a bad team most of this season, but I, I think despite their record, this is going to be a, a fun late season test that it's, it's nice that it has no playoff implications, but I, I don't think it's going to be like an easy win for DC by any means. So, listener, unfortunately, there are no DraftKings lines this week, if we forgot to tell you earlier, which we did. Uh, oh, otherwise, yeah. that would be an interesting little chewing nugget to, I think, insert here. But one thing that I think would be maybe the best way that Boston could win this matchup is if they somehow convinced beforehand, and I just want to see this happen, a foot race between... Ray Tetro and Alexander Fall, I think we deserve that. Tetro is like a college sprinter, and Fall might be the fastest player in the league. Is he? Yeah, Tetro is. I I would put my money on Fall. Based I, mean, on, I mean, but Tetro has like full field Tetro is like a straight up track and field person. So I, you know, I, I think yeah, it, I I didn't know Tetro that. is like one of the more underrated speedsters in in the league and I think he's been showing that this year and he just wheel routes into space he leaves people behind him like people just don't keep up with him and obviously I think fall has been one of the most explosive players in the league this year but I think the fans deserve just before the game some kind of like 100 yard dash 
right in the track. There's a track at Boston, just right in front of the grandstand. There is. Right there. And Boston Boston should settle their winning hopes on possibly Tetro and the underdog. All right, I'm in favor yeah. of it. Yeah. Make it happen. I have no power to make this happen. But we should move on to the big central division matchup. Uh, could possibly determine the third and final playoff spot in the central division. Indianapolis will be hosting Minnesota and not at their usual indoor Grand Park facility. But instead, I forget, Carroll? It's not... Carroll Park. Carroll Park, not affiliated called? with the University. Carroll, Carroll Stadium. Stadium. It's... Stadium. The Indy 11 soccer facility, I think. But Alley Cats will be hosting an outdoor game against the Minnesota Windchill. Windchill coming off of two straight losses, now sitting at 7-3 and three in the season in second place. Indy, of course, coming off of their big win at Madison last Friday night. Alley Cats, I think renouncing some of the uh, doubters that exist out here in punditry land about their performances outside and looking like they can really potentially hang with Minnesota and Chicago in a playoff game if they play how we've seen at times for a full four quarters. I think going into this matchup after last weekend, we were maybe expecting Minnesota to concede a little bit in the, in this game because there wasn't much at stake for a windshield team that sort of backed its way into a playoff berth. They lost two straight games, but clinched through the results of Madison's loss and some other uh, standings jumbling in the central. But Minnesota still seems prepared to go to battle with the Alley Cats in what is usually a pretty hard-fought game between these two rivals in the Central Division. Uh, Minnesota will be absent some notable defenders. Uh, Rocco Linehan, I think, from what I've heard, is out for the season after a bid in the game last weekend against Chicago. He did something to his former wrist. Sam Ward will not be available in this this game. Uh, Michael Jordan and Cole Jerk will be out on offense for the windchill. Rami Paust and Colin Berry still out on the defense for the windchill, and Tony Paletto also not available for the windchill O. So there are some pretty notable absences for Minnesota, but they still have a bulk of their talent. And as we talked about a bunch, they're a team that's oftentimes defined by their depth. But for Indianapolis, they have a couple of interesting absences as well. Notably, Nick Hutton's still not available due to injury and no Fletcher hair this week. He has been, I think really crucial to their deep defense uh, in his first season with the alley cats. He's been a big presence for them also in the counterattack, catching a lot of Xavier Payne hucks in transition. So it'll be interesting to see how Indianapolis's defense deals without two of their more, I think uh, notable playmakers. Yeah, this this game, I, I mean, it's the only sample size we have from this season between these two teams was a very, very lopsided wind chill win over Indy uh, earlier this season. I think it was 28. Indy was missing a bunch of players like that. in that. Yeah, yeah, including Key and North, arguably the star of their offense, and Xavier Payne, arguably the star of their defense. Uh, and without those two guys, you know, they had Matsuka active in that game, but they had to use Matsuka on offense based on some of those absences. And I think Carter Ray might have also missed that game too, who's normally no, 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 no. starting. He had the greatest handler. in that game. 
Oh, oh, that no, was Indy had a game. lead after the first quarter, and then I think they got outscored like sixteen to six or something in the last three quarters or something. Like it was, <laughs> that was... ridiculous. Yeah, what they, a wild they were missing swing. a lot of yeah, yeah, starters. Yeah. So, yeah, Carter no, he actually played great. I'm looking back now: five assists, two goals, um, over 300 throwing yards. But you know, despite that, I think Keegan North and Xavier Payne were like the headlining absences in that game. And just now getting to see a more full strength in the team. Well, yes, they are still missing a couple key defenders um, against like, you know, a, a somewhat depleted Minnesota team. Like, like you said, they are ex- extremely deep. Of course, they, they're fine. Like just looking at what their projected starting O-line and starting D-line would be. I, I'm not like concerned about it, but they are missing some guys that have been like key players for them, especially in recent weeks like Cole Jurek has been playing great recently Michael Jordan's has moments um Tony Paletto of course is always very involved so I yeah I'm just I'm eager to get like a glimpse of exactly how these teams stack up against each other like assuming Brett Matsuka goes back to D-line where I think he's best utilized with Indy that sort of leaves Indy with like their their traditional starting O-line against Minnesota which we just haven't seen this season yet um, I'm a, maybe a bit worried that it's an outdoor game, but I think they mostly put the narrative to rest against Madison. It, it was one game, but it was a very, very efficient game from both their offense and defense. What they had 12 turnovers in that game against Madison. So, you know, of course, can't predict the elements week to week, but I'm, I'm excited to see Indy sort of continue, you know, hopefully rounding into shape as we approach the postseason. Do you continue to trust the 68% level that the D-line indie counterattack is converting at going into the playoffs? Is that number sustainable? I know we're now, you know, 11 games into the season for Eric, sorry, 10 games into the season for Indy, but it just, it still feels like such a shockingly high efficiency rate for break conversions that I, it is. I just wonder, like, when is that going to give a little bit? And it didn't against Madison. You know, like, they didn't need a whole bunch of turnovers. And I think that that bodes really well in matchups against a potential Minnesota offense that is starting to click a bit. You know, they lost last week against Chicago, but they put up 25 goals in the process and they converted the second most holds and were basically had the second best offensive performance that they've had all season. Um, what does this does it, it kind of like Philly? Can Indy continue to sustain their play at this level as they move into a postseason? Where, as we kind of talked about with Will Drumright on Tuesday, Indy hasn't been known for their D line efficiency. They've been known for their offensive holds, the Cameron Brock consistency. You know their ability to kind of, uh, I think, play together in a way that a lot of other Central Division teams struggle to on offense at times. And yet this year, they've been defined by their Mm -hmm. ability to just sort of convert whenever necessary on defense, led by, again, Xavier Payne and I think Jake Fella, too. I think as long as they have Xavier Payne, I mean, like looking at the splits, between indoor and outdoor games, their their D-line conversion rate does dip down in outdoor games. But also some of that is skewed because they went one for seven against Minnesota when, when they went up to Minnesota. And like we said, that was without 
save your pain. So slight skewing of those numbers, but I think in outdoor games, their D-line conversion percentage is right around like maybe high 50s, maybe close to 60%. Um, and then indoor games, it's more like mid 70s. So, you know, I think them converting more than 50% of their D-line possessions, I, I would say I kind of expect them to be 50% or higher in most of their games at this point. I, I don't think they're quite at that 68% level, or I don't think there's going to be so much consistency of them hitting that well, high but, of a number, so, but I do I do trust wait, them. Reasonably. Wait, though, but like going from 68 to 50, that's kind of the difference in what's been holding them out in a lot of these closer games. Like I think if you remove that efficiency, they're not a defense that's necessarily winning a bunch of blocks. They... They pressure well. They take advantage of floaty discs in space. But I wouldn't say that the indie defense is known for pressuring opponents' offenses. Uh, and if you if you lower them even you know to fifty five percent, let alone fifty percent defensive conversion rate, is that enough for them to hang with Chicago and Minnesota? I think their offense is going to have to get more efficient i mean they they were pretty good against yeah. madison right but 57 percent uh on their possessions i think they are capable of a better performance than that it's just the discrepancy right now between their d-line conversion rate and their o-line conversion rate where i mean let's see i might as well check the exact numbers so their d-line conversion rate is at 68.8 percent this season their o-line has only converted at 56.5 percent so like a 12 percentage point difference to me just seems it seems a little weird and, and pretty unsustainable. So I, I sort of expect that to stay in these games, they are going to have to be a little bit cleaner on offense because, you know, to, to take into account the fact that they, that D-line rate is probably not sustainable quite at its current level is, is what I'll say. But as long as they have Xavier Payne, I, I think it's very realistic for them to still be, you know, 50, 55% in a lot of these games. The canary in the coal mine a little bit for me in this team is their recent uh, red zone conversion rate. They've been turning it over better in recent weeks. Obviously, the loss at Chicago, they kind of let things get sloppy. But overall, in their last five games, India's still been playing at a great clip. And I believe they're top six overall or top five overall in fewest turnovers per game this season, but they're committing a lot of mistakes in the red zone lately. And that just, I don't think bodes well when you trend into the postseason. You just can't be giving away opportunities like that. Even against Min or Madison, they were 10 of 14 for 71%. That's, that is not great. And you could see Madison's ability to kind of take advantage of those missed opportunities for Indy. And I just, again, it's one of those things where I wonder where, some of these spots might start to give against Minnesota. But on the flip side, Indy continues to maintain and show that they can execute on defense. So, again, we don't have DraftKings lines, but if you had to make the lines for this game, where would you set it? I think Minnesota getting two and a half. Yeah, two Favorite and a half. By yeah. Two and a half? Favored by two and a half. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I I do. 
even with even with you know the outdoor indoor all all the outdoor indoor talk you know, was mostly put to rest last week against Madison, that game against Chicago and the game against against Minnesota earlier in the season like it was it was windy like those were not ideal outdoor conditions. I felt that the Madison game was very I, I don't know very normal feeling yeah like it was, it was it was pretty pretty plain yeah there there wasn't too much too many elements to deal with. Uh, and I guess I just worry about Indy's ability to play when it, you know it is slightly gusty, like it was in the Chicago game and the Minnesota game previously. But I think like if the conditions are calm, I would I would take Indy and the two and a half points. But I do think I'd favor Minnesota by at least three points if it's at all windy in that game. Here's what I'm a little bit concerned about too with Indy is that. I'm wondering if it's a bit of a letdown game after such an emotional win against Madison. And and I'm worried, like, what were the true aspirations for this Alley Cats team after they lost Dines and Carpenter at the beginning of the year? Because I know Drumright said that they want to win a championship. They're very serious about it. But I feel like in their heart of hearts, there had to be a moment of, we want to be competitive this season. And they have been. They've been terrifically competitive in the Central Division most games. But... They're going up against Chicago and Minnesota who have been practicing and game planning and preparing for championship weekend runs since, you know, February. Uh, I wonder if, I, I wonder how that energy kind of is revealed in these final two games for Indy. If they're almost, if they have like more levity because they haven't been sort of on the serious grind as long as Chicago and Minnesota, or if, sort of Minnesota mm-hmm. and Chicago's focus or longer term, I think, plan for what their long season, postseason objectives are might kind of win out. Like, I, I guess I'm just, I'm interested to see Indy in this position where we kind of didn't expect them to be, right? Like beating Madison on the road in a big game to essentially clinch a playoff spot in the Central. I don't think we saw that in any kind of, kind of crystal ball scenario after the injuries that they had at the beginning of the year and the questions that we had about how they could play outdoors. Yeah, right. I mean, this was this was very unexpected for Indy to me. I mean, you know, you look back at their head-to-head record against the rest of this, this division and all of their wins except their most recent one have come against Detroit and Pittsburgh. So, you know, like, I don't think that was necessarily so shocking, but now that they have finally beaten, you know, what we projected as one of the top three teams in this division, I think that's, you know, that's created this moment of like, okay, now Indy is, is a legit potential playoff team at this point. Um, yeah, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty curious how, how Minnesota's offense looks too, because they are missing those two pieces or three pieces uh, in Jurek, Michael Jordan, and Tony Paletto. Their offense has lacked a lot of consistency this season. They've played great against Chicago generally, but the game before that, uh, just a couple weeks ago, played pretty poorly against Madison. So I, you know, even if there are some some elements and, and some wind, some not ideal outdoor time this weekend. I I could see the game sort of remaining close if neither team is really able to pull away 
I will say the last time Quinn Snyder played at Indy in 2019, he lit them up. Oh, that was that was indoors, game. but <laughs> Snyder, I think, had like those highlights are great. Like eight goals or something. It was just clean to Snyder in the second half, and he was basically doing whatever he wanted. It's like every 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 pull play was just Snyder's oh, yeah. deep out of oh, the yeah. So I'm wondering if Minnesota might almost simplify given some of their absences and just go to a let's let Snyder feast. But, you know, Jake Fella has been, I think, a really underrated defender for Indy for a long time, but especially this year. He was pretty monumental last weekend against the Radicals and just kind of being in being in the play a lot. I don't think he's getting, you know, historic block numbers or anything this year, but he's always kind of in the right space. And that's an invaluable quality, I think, to have as a defender, especially as a big like him, where he can just affect things with his presence. Um, And I'm interested to see if he can do anything against Snyder. I think Snyder definitely has a lot on him in foot speed and just ability to cover ground in space, but fella might be able to challenge him a bit in the air. So we'll see. Um, but do you think this game real quick, last question, is it more likely to be a shootout or just a grind fest? I think the former, I think it's going to be high scoring offensively. I think given how Minnesota is playing right now and given some of their defensive absences, I expect Indy's offense to find some rhythm. And I think Indy just generally plays and matches up kind of well with Minnesota. I know that the last time they played, that wasn't the case. But again, that was with a lot of starters absent. So I don't know. I'm, I'm interested for yeah. this matchup. And for Indy, I'm interested to see kind of how they're taking things mentally right now. You know, they have these final two games against Minnesota and Atlanta. They need to win one of them. They could lose both and still potentially get into the playoffs. But I don't. I know that they don't want to back in like that. And... Yeah. Yeah. Minnesota and Atlanta are two very potent opponents. Like I think going into this season, we would have listed both of them as championship potential. Um, yes. So I, I want to see how Indy kind of closes this deal. I think that that's going to be really telling for how they're going to approach the postseason. No, no, I know we're kind of talking about it. Like they're just going to make it, but they, they still need to close the door on this. You know, Madison has, yeah, uh, Chicago left on their schedule and they get a win against the Union once a year now, even as Chicago has kind of flipped the rivalry in recent years. Radicals always get theirs against the Union at some point. And it'll be interesting to see if they can do that in their season finale at home or if Indy can just take advantage of their ability to control their complete de- playoff destiny and either win this weekend against Minnesota or win the following weekend against Atlanta. Yeah, I think this is the game to yeah. to do it for them to get that last I think so. win. I mean, this this seems like their best bet. Playing at home, a slightly depleted Minnesota team. Um, yeah, I, I think they they know that this is their moment, and I don't know. I I maybe expect them to to take it. I think Atlanta is playing a slightly better zone this year than Madison, and I think it would give a lot of trouble to Indy's offense potentially. So yeah, I agree. I think. This wind chill yeah. opponent is going to be a little bit more than potentially a Atlanta team playing for nothing in that final weekend and just kind of looking to flex its muscles one last time. Right. 
But our final preview for this episode of Swing Pass will be San Diego's two-game road trip. The Growlers, of course, coming off a win against Colorado at home, ending the Summit's perfect season. Colorado would go on the next day to get their 10th win of the year and lock up the number one seed. Salt Lake has also clinched their spot in the West, and the Growlers are one win away from clinching their fourth playoff berth, I believe it would be, uh, going back to 2017. They've made it 2017, 2018. Sorry, 2018, 2019, 2021, and 2022. Those would be the four straight seasons for the Growlers. Yes. Um, Just another terrific year for Travis Dunn and that organization, and they play at Seattle on Saturday and then at Portland on Sunday. And it feels like a setup that has been kind of traditional for the Growlers and that they've been really good at executing the past few years, and that's winning late games that matter kind of just to wrap up their playoff spot. And I I expect the Growlers to do so this weekend. I expect them to take one, if not both of the games. I think Seattle is going to be the greater challenge. They showed at home the other weekend against Salt Lake an ability to just punch with teams, as we've talked about consistently with the Cascades. They're going to be up and down and who's available, but you can always sort of rely on a wave of enthusiasm from Seattle, no matter who's playing. And I think that that's going to be true this weekend too. Um, San Diego will have basically their strongest roster available. Uh, Jeff Silverman and Chris Mazur are not listed as active this weekend, but every other big name is for the Growlers. They look to be very aware of their need to get one win this weekend and get into the playoffs And given the way that their offense is playing, given the way that I think that their defense is matching up, though it still has some ground to catch up as far as its D-line efficiency, it's playing well of late. Uh, San Diego is rounding into form, and I just think that they're setting themselves up for a weekend that could be really important for them going into the postseason. Yeah, and I like the fact that they're bringing, you know, close to their full strength roster. Maybe their fullest strength roster that we've seen yeah. from them this season, honestly. And Quack like, Warner's it's, back. It's really just a testament to, yeah, Quack Warner's back in the lineup. I mean, like to me, when a team can do this late in the season, like obviously just reemphasizing that that commitment, that buy-in is there. And, and they, like you said, they know the importance of this weekend. I think it also just gives them some more reps playing with the guys that will probably be active for that first playoff game, should they make it. So, I, yeah, it's good to see. Good to see Goose back in the lineup, too. Their offense has been very good the past couple games with him active and, and looked a little out of sorts in that road trip to Salt Lake in Colorado. So, yeah, it's just it's good to get, like, I guess more, just a bigger sample size of where this San Diego offense and, and really their defense too, like where they're at at this point in the season. And hopefully they can just continue riding this momentum into the playoffs. Did you see that stat I pulled on what the Growlers are doing with their Hucks in the last four games that Goose has been active? They're completing 85% of their deep throws with him in the lineup. They wow. just, they're a different offense with him, and you can visibly see it when he steps into the lineup. Everything just kind of shifts into the places that's supposed to be. He can be that backfield howitzer that still moves upfield and attacks when necessary, that exists as a perfect complement to Paul Lally's 
now distributor focus role. It is Paul Lally, by the way, has had one of the most interesting career arcs I have seen in the league. Oh, he yeah. started out scoring 50 goals in a season for the Nashville Nightwatch, being <laughs> there, like electrifying just out of college player, played really well in spades, was a little bit more lift. Back then, like he was a little bit more of a, a receiver, would go get. But over the years, he's remained as athletic, and I feel like he's even become stockier. There was a time he, he played for a season with Atlanta and looked like a really good defender, especially matchup in yeah. space. He's a big body. But since he's come to the Growlers, I think they've been, uh, you know, through the first season, especially last year, it felt like they were trying to figure out how he fit in with the rest of what they liked in their offense. And this year, especially, it feels like they figured out his role because other than the game at Salt Lake, he has had a super impressive 2020, excuse me, 2022 campaign. Uh, he leads the team in overall yardage, uh, in completions. Uh, he's top three in assists. He's just a rock for them week in, week out. And he had 70 of 71 throws against Colorado in their win last weekend, eight hockey assists. You know, he only had one assist, one goal, one block, but the eight hockey assists and damn near 700 yards of total offense really tell you how heavily involved he was in their attack. And when they have sort of Dunn and Helton's ability to engage the deep ball, Lally can just kind of sit back there and carve you up. And because he's so in shape and has such good endurance, he can just sustain that for four quarters. And I think you really see San Diego's ability to be aware that they can they can just start grinding teams out now. Like when they have that McDougal done kind of upfield attack balanced by Kyle Rubin and some other nice pieces in their offense, Hunter Corbett's been playing great of late. They can run you a lot. And then their backfield is starting to become a little bit impenetrable at times. Tim Okita also, I think, started off a little slow this year. He's been picking up his play a lot of late. We know him to be like one of the best pivot handlers with that lefty throw and go when he gets it going. I just, I like where San Diego is headed right now, especially on offense. It just feels like their pieces are finally making sense in a way that we were hyping going into this year. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Lally's development has been so interesting to me and he, like he's a rock in in terms of like just being that distributive center handler that he is, but he's also just so like he's making the right plays at the right time. Like he he's able to get handler motion going with Tim Okita or get going with Goose Helton, but he's also very like aware of their downfield attack and getting the disc up to those cutters and letting them do a lot of the damage. I I wrote about him in players to watch this week. He has over twenty one hundred total yards in his last three games yeah he's filling it up averaging over 700 per game like he he really is just doing everything like everything is starting with Paul Lally in the backfield but I totally agree with you it it really is you know all these pieces fitting together really nicely I like Sean McDougal has been progressing really well within the offense too like he's had two very successful weeks back to back now I, I think Sean McDougal, like the, the talent obviously was always there, but just his exact fit working alongside Travis Dunn. And, you know, when Goose Helton gets downfield at times, like there's a lot to figure out and like who's going to take those continuation shots, who's going to initiate 
but he he's been like more choosy with his shots this year. He's been much more of a, a pure receiver a lot of the time that still has throws. So yeah, I, I think everything is clicking at the right time. And so I'm just excited to see what they can do and against two like somewhat soft defenses this weekend. You know, I think this could just be a good momentum opportunity for the whole team. The other guy I wanted to bring up, Travis Dunn. I mean, the four year He's an assist king now. He's still averaging 300 receiving yards a game. And he's, what, one of seven players, I believe, this year to be averaging that clip. Um, he's averaging 7.3 total scores per game, which is almost a career best for him. I, he's not slowing down. He's starting to almost get into his mid-30s right now. He hasn't lost a step of his foot speed against a Colorado defense that has been good at eliminating or making other teams' top players play hard to get theirs, he was still just eating last Friday. Like, you could just see him wheeling around in space. He's dive-bombing on unders and taking zero hesitation and turning around and just dropping a flick into space for a receiver, for a continuation assist. He's just... He's been in rhythm for years in this offense, and it feels like as long as he's getting it going... And if he's just taking that top matchup and owning it, as he was against a very good Colorado defense, like they were throwing Matthew Ag at him, Dunn was eating him in space. At times. I was, I was gonna say I saw a lot of Cody nope. Spicer on him. The, their two games, Dunn, yeah, it didn't Dunn's really matter. Foot speed is so underrated. It, I don't know if you've seen some of the social media posts, but like Goose Helton, who's just a workout king, runs shuttle runs on the beach like he's eating a snack or something. <laughs> when he'll do like videos sometimes with Travis Dunn in those, just doing like a simple shuttle run. Dunn is just, he's, he's so smooth in his ability to change directions. And it, he runs in such an upright way that I think people really underestimate how quickly he can just go from one direction to another. And, and I think you see that at times like in a matchup against the summit where we've been talking all season about how athletic they are and what to expect. We did it the same Last year against Dallas and their defense, we we thought that they might be problematic against the Growlers offense. It was still, you know, working its pieces together after adding a whole bunch of things. And what happened in that first round? Travis Dunn came out like he was shot out of a cannon and just ran over everyone as Helton and Nethercut launched him in space. And that's kind of what Growlers were doing a little bit to Colorado. It was Travis Dunn just wheeling around and getting his and McDougal and Ruben and everyone else setting kind of up off of it. And suddenly you have kind of six to seven Growlers players overwhelming the, you know, two to three good efforts that Colorado was getting. It felt like all of a sudden this two then perfect Colorado team didn't quite have enough guns to run with the Growlers, which is really surprising to say this far into the season, you know? <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, Colorado was a team that... I I thought, you know, that they were more or less untouchable with how they handled San Diego and Salt Lake in back-to-back weeks. Like, they they were clearly looking like the, the best equipped, you know, most athletic team that opponents didn't seem to have an answer for. But, yeah, like we said earlier this week, like, for San Diego to just out-execute them and just play better, more consistent offense and, like, get the most out of all their pieces better than what Colorado was able to do. 
that that was just not something I saw coming. And as much as we talk about Goose and like his the deep dimension he brings to the San Diego offense, Dunn has been unloading beautiful hucks the past few weeks. Oh, yeah. Uh, in his last three games, or his last four games, actually, he is 10 of 11 on hucks right now. And I like he'll he's not perfect like he'll he'll turn the disc over at other times too but i i just i think i i haven't given him enough credit for like how good of a thrower he is and and everyone just seems to be fitting around that too like mcdougall knows exactly when to time up those deep cuts now like goose knows how to get done the disc in space it's it's really it's a well-oiled machine at this point and yeah of course travis dunn is at the heart of it all he always is. So he's on pace to once again finish with 40-plus assists. If he does, it will be his fourth straight season with 40-plus assists. Uh, yeah, I think he really is moving into that realm of somebody who we underrate as a thrower. I mean, he's got 239 regular season assists for his career. So he's not exactly quietly moving up the all-time career assists leaderboard. Like, I, I think that Dunn, is, he, if not. he keeps up at this production, you know, he's going to really start knocking on the door. And in fact, I say that he's just outside of the top 10 all time. You know who else is in the top 10 that we never talk about and we should as we head into playoffs? And I wrote about him a little bit. because we never, we never Well, talk about we don't him. talk about him enough. Sean Mott. Sean Mott. Oh, yeah. has 278 career assists. He's on pace almost for his uh, fourth 50-plus uh, assist season in five years. Uh, it's just funny. Like I think our conception of what a good thrower is becomes so different but depending on the scenario, and yet there's guys like Mott and Dunn who have just been amazing continuation throwers <laughs> right. that I don't think we maybe give as much credit to as we should. Sure. I mean, yeah, there's, I, I like, I like that ultimate has a bunch of varieties of types of throwers, you know, there's even like within handlers, you've got your center handlers, you've got guys that like need to have power position, you got guys that just create space for themselves and then open up throws, but then downfield, of, of course, like that, that striking cutter that can get the disc on initiating cut and then launch it. Like those are typically, in my opinion, the most successful hucks in the league when they're coming in the rhythm of the offense. Like those are the most difficult to defend just because the cut gets set up ahead of time. Um, and I think teams that do do that well, like New York, of course, comes to mind. Like Osgar has been the king of those the past two seasons now. And Weinberg, like you we were talking about before. Uh, I, I think it's just so beneficial when an offense has multiple guys that can do that and san diego definitely seems to fit that mold well that'll do it for this slightly shorter episode of swing pass previewing week 13 with 12 games that'll get started tomorrow night on watch.audl.tv you can always watch every game except for the fs2 game of the week live on watch.audl.tv and going into the playoffs that will include the two semifinal games at championship weekend this year. The championship game will be aired live on FS2, but you will get two of the three championship weekend games on watch.audl.tv. And there are a bunch of good upcoming games, including the playoffs as we round towards August. But again, thank you for tuning in for this week 13 preview pod. 
We look forward to watching the upcoming weekend of games alongside you. If you want to interact with Daniel and I on Twitter, please do so and find us on there. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. And we will talk to you on Tuesday, recapping the penultimate weekend of regular season action in 2022. See you soon.